Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Braveheart 25. Better late than never. The recent headline on the Trim Tourism Network homepage made me smile and I was transported back to the mid-1990s when I was a journalist with the Meath Chronicle. Covering local courts where the same colourful characters appeared week after week. Reporting on ponderous urban council meetings that discussed person-sized potholes. Or annual agricultural shows which featured classes like heaviest potato or best commercial bullock with not more than two permanent teeth. It wasn't quite Woodward and Bernstein. Then the rumblings began. A film crew was coming to trim. A $50 million film, or rather movie, a Hollywood movie. Local TD Noel Dempsey, who was junior minister in the Department of Defence, had facilitated the involvement of hundreds of members of the Irish Defence Forces as extras in this movie. Stop press. Braveheart would be directed by and star none other than Mel Gibson. Finally, a glamorous reporting assignment. I imagined myself on set, notebook in hand, asking probing, incisive questions of Mel Gibson. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalism, at the very least. That August, at the hands of skilled tradesmen, Trim Castle, Ireland's largest Anglo-Norman castle, began its transformation. Extensive wooden buttresses appeared on the town's skyline, in addition to two towers. There was a gate that someone said weighed seven tonnes. A factory on Trim's Atboy Road was home to 18 crew members making mouldings for the castle walls. Meanwhile, local FCA personnel were endeavouring to grow beards as they undertook seven weeks of training in sword fighting and handling bows and pikes at the Curra. The excitement was at its height when the filming of Braveheart began on the 26th of August. Residents of Trim vied with day-trippers to get a sighting of Mel Gibson and an all-star cast including Ian Bannon, Patrick McGoohan, Sophie Marceau and Brendan Gleeson. The rumour mill was in full swing. Someone had it on good authority that Mel Gibson was staying in a house on the Longwood Road. Did you hear one of the extras hit Mel with a rotten cabbage? No, you're not serious. Meanwhile, I was frantically trying to contact the PR woman, Daisy or Poppy Double Barrel, to get the scoop of the year. But when she finally returned my calls, she told me firmly I wouldn't be getting an interview with Mel. Apparently, Mel's people hadn't been impressed by my 20 Things You Didn't Know About Mel Gibson article. To add insult to injury, my editor managed to get sneaked onto the set by a cunning extra. But all I could do was join the other rubberneckers on Trim Ring Road at dusk each evening. I ooed and aahed with everyone else. A group of hirsute kilted warriors strolled by at one stage and distracted the groupies and the gawkers. Are they friends of yours, Daddy? a child asked. Across the River Boyne, William Wallace and his ragamuffin army sacked York. My eyes met his, I'm sure of it, across a clouded pair of binoculars. Not the most romantic of introductions, but it was a start. Let's face it, 
when it's Mel Gibson who's complaining. After filming finished one evening, a Garda car arrived. Would the boys in blue be giving Mel an escort? A bystander wondered. A man in a trench coat with an earpiece tried to get the onlookers to move away. They were having none of it until they got a glimpse of the main man. Then a black Land Rover Discovery with a British registration plate exited the set. The front seat passenger had his coat collar up around his ears and his hat tipped low. Was it? Wasn't it? Maybe. Maybe not. When I got to see Braveheart at a press screening in Dublin the following year, I was gripped by the bloody battle scenes and enchanted by the tender love story between William Wallace and Murren. In the Academy Awards that year, Braveheart received ten nominations and won five Oscars for Best Picture, Director, Cinematography, Sound Effects and Makeup. Trim Tourism Network was meant to celebrate Braveheart's 25th anniversary in 2020, but that was scuppered by Covid, so now the celebrations are happening this month. Better late than never. I can't wait for the outdoor screening of Braveheart in front of Trim Castle next Saturday. I'll muse about what could have been as I relive those glory days. Her real name is important, even at this remove, so I won't use it. Let me just call her Emily. She was more or less of my own age, a beautiful young woman with wild fair hair and a smile that could melt ice. I was working as a DJ in the disco in Castle Dermot in those days, a weekly gig that brought me home from college on Friday evenings. She was working in a factory in a nearby town. She was what the older generation called wild. She drank too much and that led her into situations that were challenging, to say the least. It was a Friday night late in the summer of 1972 and the disco doors were closing. The last broken hearts taking themselves out into the night. The music silent, and a full moon hanging above the village like a Christmas decoration. I'd said my good nights to the bouncer and was turning to make for home when I saw her. She was sitting on the ground across the street, her back to the convent wall, her knees drawn up, her head buried in her lap. I stopped and hunkered down beside her. Are you okay? I asked. She sniffled and nodded, but it was clear that she was far from okay. Are you waiting for someone? She shook her head and laughed a bitter laugh. No, that train is long gone, she said. I'm heading home, I said. I can walk with you if you like. 
Again, she nodded, and I helped her to her feet. She was unsteady, so she took my arm, and together we made our way along the moonlit street. My mother, I knew, would not have been impressed. Someone let you down, I asked. Don't they always? I changed the subject and we talked about her work, and she asked about college, and soon we were laughing, remembering things that had happened in our primary school days. Close to her home, she suggested we sit on a low wall so that she could get herself together before facing her parents. We watched the moon and wondered what it would be like to be up there, looking down on the earth. I asked if she was happy in her work. How could I be, she said. It's dead end, like this place, like my life, like me. Every week is a pay packet and every weekend is me ending up like this. She laughed a softer laugh. I don't mean you, she said. I mean, I end up at a dance, drunk, with some guy who just wants what he can get but wouldn't be seen dead with me in daylight. All I really want is to find someone who can see past that. I just want kids and a house and all that stuff. Is that too much to ask? Otherwise, what the hell is the point of it all? I don't know, I said. I wanted to say more, but I couldn't think of anything even vaguely wise. So we sat in the desperate silence of the small hours. A little while later, I walked her to her garden gate, and she smiled a washed-out smile. Thanks, she said. Her face was as pale as death in the full moonlight. More than 40 years later, I got a text from a man I knew. It read, Not sure if you remember Emily. Just heard she died. I went to Emily's wake, and afterwards I spoke with her sister. She emigrated, I said. Yes, her sister said, she did. Went abroad, married, had children. But it really didn't work out for her. It was a struggle every day of every month of every year. But she got away from here, I said. Her sister nodded politely. The problem was, she said, Emily could never get away from herself. Driving back home, I thought of the two of us sitting on that low wall under a full moon in the late August of 1972. Neither one with an answer to the questions as to why we're here and how we make our way without any certainty through the pathless woods that are our lives. A steaming spout spitting out hot water all day was the closest that the Irish press had to a canteen. Anyone filling their mug on the early morning shift for the evening press would pass near a seated figure at the end of the sports desk, 
who looked as impressive as anything carved into Mount Rushmore. Standing up in his customary anorak, he looked like a colossus on leave from his post as a custodian of Skellig Michael. The mind is composing and the body is decomposing, he would say, as he rubbed his eyes and put pen to paper, single sentences on single sheets of copy paper, until the sheets were carried off to be typeset and turned into molten lead and newsprint. Con Hulhan never thought it necessary to learn the art of typing or shorthand. His copy seemed to flow effortlessly from his pen. He worked without notes. He had been a lifetime preparing for his starring role in the competitive world of sports journalism. The build-up to his arrival on the back page of the evening press at the grand old age of 46 included stints on the family bog outside Castle Island, County Kerry, which helped make him a formidable member of the town's rugby team. He studied Latin, English and maths at UCC, subjects which he later taught to the students at Mary Immaculate College in Castle Island. He also turned his hand to making black pudding in Charlie Lenehan's butcher shop, and it was Charlie who appointed him editor of a quixotic and short-lived monthly publication called The Taxpayer's News. As editor, he was a con of all trades. His recipe for frying trout read, To avoid fragmentation, roll in flour. The trout, not yourself. He took pride in the paper's achievements, which included an inquiry into the running of the county mental hospital and publishing the young John B. Keane for the first time. A libel action brought it to an end, but that marked the beginning of Conn's career with the Kerryman, where his pacifist stance on the national question brought him death threats and other abuse, leading to a guard of presence on the Kerryman's premises for a few anxious weeks. Highlights of his career in the kingdom included covering a minor county hurling final in which neither side scored as much as a point. It took some coaxing by the evening press editor, Sean Ward, but Con eventually moved to Dublin, where he quickly became the doyen of Irish sports journalism. His ability to conjure up startling images won him a huge audience, including this famous account of the Dublin goalkeeper Paddy Cullen's vain effort to stop a goal in the 1978 All-Ireland football final between Kerry and Dublin. Mike Sheehy was running up to take the kick, and suddenly Paddy dashed back towards his goal like a woman who smells a cake burning. The ball won the race and it curled inside the near post as Paddy crashed into the outside of the net and lay against it like a fireman who had returned to find his station ablaze. Con covered major events like Italia 90 and Stephen Roach's Tour de France win but also pondered such mundane matters as St. Patrick's Athletics' temporary move from Inchicore to Harold's Cross, noting that the fans complained about the weather there. Of the many tributes paid to him, he particularly prized one spotted on the back of a toilet door. Con Hulan says that Pats will never die. Unfortunately, the Irish press group did die. When it collapsed in 1995, Con described his feelings of loneliness and desolation when he passed by that great stranded ship between Burg Quay and Poolbeg Street. Con would continue to write for other outlets. His last piece, in which he wished Katie Taylor well, was published in the Sunday World the day after his death at the age of 86 in August 2012 
in St. James's Hospital. He lives on in the memory of those who had the pleasure to read him and in the memory of those of us who had the pleasure to work with him in Berg Key. As Khan wrote, it was a great place to work. Camaraderie had its full meaning there. Thank you for the days Those endless days, those sacred days you gave me I'm thinking of the days I won't forget a single day, believe me I bless the light I bless the light that lights on you, believe me Now you're gone King Crab, in memory of Matthew Sweeney. I thought it was him at the other end of the hotel restaurant. It couldn't be, I said to myself, but it looks like him. It was him. Sit down, he said, and he offered me a glass of red. My drink was at the other table a distance away. I'm in this hotel, are you? No, I'm in the hotel across the road, he said. There was an awful hullabaloo, a stag party or something. I couldn't bear the racket. I thought I'd cross over here for a quiet drink. I nearly got obliterated by a truck. The car lights nearly blinded me. Then I zigzagged. I was King Crab. This was Dublin Airport, pre-Covid. We were both reading at a festival in Canada, but our flight times were different. No, I had never met the organiser, David O'Mara. He's a nice guy. You like him, he said. Matthew was flying at some ungodly hour. He did the zigzag story again, how traffic tried to flatten him. It got funnier every time he told it. He told it one last time before he attempted the crossing. The mode of transport was different this time. A horse-drawn carriage with no driver entered the story. I watched from the restaurant window and saw him relive the story in real time. He zigged and zagged to the honking horns of the flying horsemen, the airport buses. He didn't give a hoot. I began my apprenticeship as my mother's scribe as soon as I'd mastered the art of cursive writing. I wasn't much more than six when I graduated from pencil to pen and ink in school. I think the transition happened in first class and like a lot of things that I aspired to, what looked exciting turned out to be an extremely difficult and painful process. The pen was the most primitive type of writing instrument imaginable a stick with a small steel nib attached, just one step up from a feather quill. But before we put pen to paper, the ink had to be made. And this involved a ceremony that belonged to and was guarded jealously by the big girls. 
A box of ink powder was retrieved from the Kofra Moor and we watched as two trusted alchemists measured, mixed and stirred until they were satisfied with the consistency of their potion. And then we slid back the brass covers of the inkwells and held our breath as the chosen ones processed from desk to desk, faces solemn with the magnitude of their calling, hands anointed indigo blue, decanting the precious concoction into white porcelain inkwells. Then came the dangerous part. You dipped the flat nib into the dainty white inkwell and estimated the exact amount of ink needed to write a word without lifting the nib from the paper. Applying the nib to the paper was equally hazardous as too much pressure would encourage it to scratch holes in the page, while a lack of confidence on your part would result in blots spurting in all directions, ruining your work and earning slaps to a small hand already cramped and weary. So feeling a bit worn out by schoolwork, I was an unwilling partner in my mother's letter writing, but she had a secret weapon, the biro, banned in school for ruining handwriting. It rarely let you down and allowed you to skate along the page with great speed. So when I was instructed to fetch the writing pad and biro from the kitchen drawer and to sit down at the table while mother ministered to the needs of the current baby or attended to the mound of clothes that needed ironing or mending, I flexed my fingers and got ready. Start with the address, she'd say. Balask, Kilmore, County Wexford is enough. While I added Leinster, Ireland, Era, the world, the universe and a date somewhere in the mid-sixties. Mother addressed her two non-sisters formally. Dear Sister Consolata, she would dictate, or Dear Sister Porrick, I hope you are keeping well and have settled into Johannesburg or Finglas, depending on who we were writing to that day. That was the easy part. Now she dictated the family news. The baby was trying to walk. My little sister who had scalded her arm was home from hospital. My younger brother was going to be an altar boy next year. We went to the carnival in Tomhaggart where I got sick in the chairplanes and another brother got lost. By the second page I was moaning, chewing the glass tube of the biro and pressing it so hard that it left a trail of small sticky ink blobs as I recorded the deaths, births and marriages in the village, the patron in the cemetery, the May procession, the thunderstorm, the harvest and the building of the new hayshed. Then she unplugged the iron and I signed off with your loving niece, Anne. The upside of all this labour was the lift of the heart, the flutter of excitement when Nicky Savage leaned his postman's bike against our wall and we ran to the gate to meet him and relieve him of the bundle of post, scanning the handwriting to guess who had answered our letters. Despite all the whining that I subjected my mother to during the years as her scribe, I became an avid letter writer myself. As I grew up, I continued to write to the aunts, adding on other pen pals along the way. Friends moving house, girls I met in Irish college or on the beach in summer. No one was safe. Even when my parents had a phone installed, I kept on writing. When I went to college in Dublin, my mother and I wrote to each other every week. When I became a wife and a mother, we continued to write as I filled her in on the progress of her first grandchild and she kept me abreast with the lives of my younger siblings. 
I still have her letters, tucked away in a small bundle that includes some from my husband before he achieved that status. Long missives from my children when they were interrailing or found themselves at the mercy of a banity on the Gaeltacht, and various notes and cards from other correspondents that are no longer with us. In more recent years, I took to email, loving its speed and convenience. But while I consider it to be one of the greatest inventions ever, and my inbox contains photos, images and videos, it never quite lives up to the thrill of receiving a handwritten letter in a distinctive and instantly recognisable scrawl. Because as John Donne wrote to a friend four centuries ago, more than kisses, letters mingle souls. Just a little too much to hide Maybe, baby, everything's gonna turn out fine Please read the letter For all the wonder and convenience of air travel, the Aer Lingus schedule enforced an overnight stay in Dusseldorf for a meeting that lasted less than an hour. This was my first visit to Dusseldorf, although I have passed through the airport many times, usually on the way to Cologne. Being in Germany is never a light-hearted experience for me. Can any Jewish person pretend otherwise? Some histories are so disturbing, they cling to the air, even now, three-quarters of a century later. I understand that Germany has changed beyond all recognition since the war, that decades of stable coalition politics have transformed this previously moribund state into the poster child of liberal democracy. But the heart will not beat easily on streets that would have declared me unworthy of life within living memory. Dusseldorf is the capital of North Rhine-Westphalia, Germany's most populous area, with a population of 600,000. Flattened by the RAF in 1943, the city was rebuilt in haste in the 50s. Ugly, practical blocks of accommodation, serving a purpose at the time far greater than any grand architectural master plan. The homeless needed shelter. For its citizens, however, Dusseldorf is blessed with a temperate climate and a series of five lakes that provide reprieve from the stress of the city. That said... There was no city hubbub. The pavements were filled with people, the roads with cars. But life glided over itself like stacked cogs in a delicate Swiss watch, ticking almost silently. My business concluded, I had lunch and headed for Grabberplatz, the location of the regional art collection. Launched in 1961, the K-20 is a magnificent collection of 400 masterpieces of 20th century art that was largely assembled by Ernst Beiler, the legendary Swiss collector responsible for the Basel Art Fair and an eponymous foundation housed in a spectacular Renzo Piano edifice in the same city. One can understand something of the speed of Germany's post-war recovery when, only 16 years after the end of the war, a regional museum was in a position financially to acquire a collection of this calibre 
a symbol of a renewed wealth and polity, closing the door on a regime that would have labelled much of this art degenerate. With a couple more free hours before heading back to the airport, I set out to find some Stolpersteiner, which I had never seen other than in photographs. First designed in 1993 by the German artist Gunter Demnig, Stolpersteiner are brass plaques with the engraved names of individual victims of the Holocaust. Ten centimetre squares adhere to a concrete cube and set into the pavement like a cobblestone outside the home of each victim. The artist lays each one by hand. The first site was in Berlin in 1996 and there are now more than 90,000 spread out over 1,200 towns and cities in Europe, predominantly in Germany. Demnig conceived of the idea from a saying in the Talmud that declares that a person is only forgotten when their name is forgotten. Each plaque is engraved by Michael Friedrichs Friedlander with the words, here lived, the name and the fate of the individual, often stating that they were murdered. Stolperstein translates as stumbling stone in English. The concept is that you stumble across them with your mind and your heart. You cannot physically trip up over them. They glint at you outside buildings where Jews were dragged out of their homes to be murdered because they were Jews. I found four in a line. The Mainz family, all murdered in 1942. That each Stolperstein is handmade is symbolic. The artist resiling from the mechanised slaughter of the victims, whom the regime counted as a statistic, not as individuals. Brass, an alloy of copper and zinc, is hardy and redolent of plaques that would ordinarily attach to buildings. Demnig did not want to be at the mercy of the building's owners when seeking permission to put up a plaque. This way, only the local council needs to offer its consent. Some relatives of victims are not happy with this form of commemoration, feeling that the names of their loved ones risk being trampled underfoot. Some countries do not want to remember their Jewish citizens. According to latest records, Poland, where three million Jews were murdered, has fewer than 20 Stolpersteiner. On the 1st of June this year, Gunter Demnig placed six Stolpersteiner outside St. Catherine's School on Donor Avenue in Dublin 8 to commemorate Irish victims of the Holocaust who found themselves under Nazi occupation and were subsequently murdered. But these victims, who do not have marked graves, can now be respected, honoured and remembered in a small corner of Europe that would have provided a safe haven for them had they remained in Ireland. Demnig describes the Stolpersteiner as a decentralised monument to the victims of the Holocaust. The appearance of them in Ireland reflects the long tentacles of this terrible history and how, regardless of our geography, we all have a moral obligation never to forget.
My mother loved me in red. I saw my mother's grave from the top of the bus recently. She died in 1971. I only saw her grave from this angle a few days ago. I was a great one for the buses years ago. I even wrote a poem about it. Then we got the Arts Council bursary car and that was the end of the buses for me. Now that I have the bus pass, I'd be inclined to use the bus more often. Plus, I can see my mother's grave from the upper deck. I say nothing to the other passengers as we pass the graveyard, much as I want to shout. Inside that wall, four graves into the left, lies a good woman, Margaret Mary Higgins, who died aged 55. She gave birth to 12. One died at six months. Joachim Mary had a hole in his heart. My mother loved me in red. She would say, red is lovely on you. She told me this, not often, but as often as she could, while the other ten were out of earshot, which in truth was as likely as a lunar eclipse, a ghost rainbow, or meeting a natterjack on the run. On this morning's programme, we heard Braveheart, Better Late Than Never by Christina Hessian, By the Light of the Moon by John McKenna, Remembering Con Hulahan was by Dennis McLean. King Crab, a poem for Matthew Sweeney, was by Rita Ann Higgins. My Mother's Scribe by A.M. Cousins. Stumbling Stones was by Oliver Sears. And My Mother Loved Me in Red, another poem by Rita Ann Higgins. The music this morning was The Braveheart Theme by James Horner. Dancing in the Moonlight by Thin Lizzy. Thank You for the Days, sung by Luke Kelly. Criss Cross was by Thelonious Monk and Please Read the Letter That I Wrote by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss and finally Zay, composed by Jeff Hamburg, sung by Judith Mock with the Amsterdam Sinfonietta. And as mentioned in Christina Hessian's script, there's an open-air screening of Braveheart at Trim Castle next Saturday evening. For tickets, see stayintrim.ie forward slash Braveheart. Sunday Miss Elney is produced by Sarah Binchy. The broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. You can find highlights from Miss Elney at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miss Elney podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miss Elney.